You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. So tonight we are addressing the heart-wrenching topic of uh, ransoming captives, of ransoming those who have been abducted. And it's a hard topic. It's If you really stop and think about what's going on, uh, you can lose your mind. It's so difficult and so painful to even start to conceive of the 223 and their families and what we're going through. And of course, we should all see them and view them and feel them like our own family, like they're our children, like they're our grandparents, like they're our brothers and sisters. And when we do that, of course, our first reaction is just to say, of course we have to save them. And of course we would have to do whatever is required, whatever prisoner exchange, whatever ultimatums are put in front of us to to bring them home. That's our first reaction, the reaction of our hearts. And it's a human one, and it's a correct one. However, as I said last week, um, when we're dealing with difficult life situations, with moral dilemmas, with ethical challenges, the Torah directs us to step back and to not just be led by our emotions, but trying to look at situation objectively and trying to think, okay, how how does this work? What is the right course of action? And not to compare, but in our own lives, there are plenty of times where you're like, oh yeah, I'd love to buy that car, you know, or yeah, I want to go on that vacation. And then we stop and we think and say, yeah, can I really afford it? And we look at it objectively and we might change our decision. So once again, of course, not to compare. But what we're going to do now is to step back and look at this whole question of hostages, kidnappings, captives, and see what Jewish sources have to say about it. And through that, we'll try to develop an approach, an outlook, and maybe try to understand also the approach that the Israeli uh, people in charge have taken and, you know, thinking that uh, probably the hardest thing as a leader is to be confronted with these kind of terrible, terrible dilemmas. And I can't even imagine having to be in that position either. Now, unlike last week's topic, which was civilian casualties, where we noted that there hadn't really been a Jewish army for a few thousand years. So there wasn't a lot of literature on it. Unfortunately, in the area of captives, hostages, there's an enormous amount of literature. And throughout history, and not just against Jews, but in general society, unfortunately, this was very common. Pirates who would abduct people in order to extract ransoms goes all the way back, probably, to the beginnings of human history. Uh, the first war the United States fought were the Barbary Wars 
which were against pirates in North Africa who were taking hostages. And often there were American ships and American citizens who were taken. In Jewish history, we have a very famous story of the Maharam of Rottenburg, Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg, who was a leader of European Jewry in the late 1200s, early 1300s. And he was abducted by one of the German princes and put in prison. And we'll talk about what happened to him. So coming to modern times, uh, 2014, I believe, 2014, 2015, we had Gilad Shalit, who was a soldier who was abducted in Gaza. And this went on for a good amount of time. I think over a year, there were tents set up at different intersections. And eventually he was traded for an enormous number of terrorists who were in Israeli prisons. So let's look at some of the sources and see how we address this terrible uh, life-wrenching issue. So I'm sharing my screen with you here. And the first thing to note is that the Torah tells us that we have a responsibility to every other Jew. And here you see in the Talmud, and how do we know that someone who's drowning being dragged by a wild animal, threatened. We have to jump in to save them. We have an absolute responsibility. And we learn it from a verse in the Torah. Do not stand aside when your fellow's blood is being shed. So we have to do everything in our, in our, in our, in our, in our ability to take a person out of a dangerous situation, out of a painful situation. And we are says that every Jew is responsible for every other Jew. Now, I know you're thinking, what about, do I have to put myself in danger to do that? And we'll discuss that at the end. We will address that. Now, uh, ransoming hostages, or pidyon shivuim, which is often translated as redeeming captives, and today's terms, it's uh, ransoming hostages, it's the top priority of charity giving in Judaism. And here we see text number two, Maimonides, in his work on uh, the entire corpus of Jewish law, the Mishneh Torah, in his chapter on gifts for the poor, he tells us that redeeming captives is prioritized above every other charity, sustaining the poor, providing them with clothing. I guess if a person was dying of hunger, that might take precedence. But beyond that, he said, there is no greater mitzvah than the redemption of captives. If you don't have the money, you can sell a Torah scroll to redeem captives, our holiest object. And there's debate even whether you can sell the synagogue to ransom off someone who's been kidnapped. So, that sets down the, of course, the moral imperative and the absolute imp primary uh, importance and priority that this takes. However, we're going to see that uh, it's going to be a little more complicated. And this is from the Talmud. 
Babylonian Talmud Gitin 45a. And it discusses how much do would we should we be paying to redeem captives. And the Talmud sets down a principle. Captives should not be redeemed for more than their value because of tikkun olam. Now, tikkun olam in the last 30 years has taken on a different meaning. But in the Talmud, the original meaning of tikkun olam is for the protection of the community. It was uh, laws that legislation that the rabbis enacted in order to make sure that society could function properly. Now, what does it mean that they should not be redeemed for more than their value? So classically, hostages would be taken, captives would be taken, uh, let's say by pirates. And what would they do? They would go sell them on the slave market. Terrible history of humanity, as we know, the history of slavery. This was done on a mass level, but it was also done on an individual level. However, the pirates knew that they could get more money from someone, from the family or from the community. They would, of course, try that first. Now, generally, you know, if an American is kidnapped off the coast of North Africa, okay, they could uh, reach out to an American consul or the American government, but it's far away. But it was known that Jewish communities, even if the Jew wasn't from that community, let's say someone was kidnapped off Italy, but they were from Spain, it was known that even if a person wasn't from their own community, that Jewish communities would ransom Jewish captives to free them. And so, can imagine, it was came up a lot. And the Talmud gives us two reasons why we would not redeem someone for more than their value. So the first thing is that it will become a financial burden on the community. Now, this is an interesting question. How far do you have to go to spend money to save a person's life? Let's say it's a medical procedure, uh, a rescue operation. So this is a very interesting question. Um, and uh, generally, it's considered that it's a communal responsibility. So you don't have to give up all your money. But if a life were at stake um, and there was no one else to be able to do it, so we imagine that life would come before money. So the Khatam Sofer, who lived in the 19th century, he explains the rationale for this, which is that... And we, it's hard for us to appreciate this, but a Jewish community which is compromised financially doesn't have the resources to maintain, to sustain itself. In the medieval world, if you didn't have money, you didn't have nutrition. If you didn't have nutrition, you were much more likely to get sick. And in a world without penicillin and modern medicine, that could easily lead to the loss of life. So there is a dimension here. It's not just financial. It's um, dangerous for a community to undermine its financial stability. And the second reason given in the Talmud is that it will create a greater incentive for the kidnappers to do it again. 
right? To pay off above the person's value, then they're going to go and say, hey, this is good business. These Jews are paying out. Let's go get another Jew and another Jew and another Jew. So that, of course, we understand very well. Now, what's the difference between these two opinions? So let's say someone's family member got kidnapped and they and they come forward and they offer, they say, I've got plenty of money. I will redeem my family member. It won't affect the community. So here you see, maybe it won't affect the community, but it might affect it in giving incentive for them to go kidnap more people. The two exceptions that are mentioned are if for a person to, to ransom themselves, there's no financial limitation because the kidnappers will see, well, this is a rich guy, so of course he's going to bail himself out. Now, the other exception is for a great Torah scholar who is crucial for the spiritual leadership of a community, you could pay more. However, uh, an interesting test case came up. In the 1970s, um, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, uh, fought their cause by kidnapping, by hijacking planes. And a famous hijacking story was in the early 1970s, a plane uh, to Greece was hijacked, I think from Greece to Israel, and it was diverted to Jordan. And on that plane was a Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner, one of the prominent rabbis of the American Jewish community. And so there was a debate and debate amongst rabbinic authorities of should they redeem him? Should they, one of his students, uh, one of the members of his community, he was the head of the Chaim Berlin Yeshiva in Brooklyn, so had some very wealthy backers. And he said, I'll put up whatever the sum is at the time, a few million dollars, I'll pay it out for the rabbi's release. And so a rabbinic council was convened in the United States to decide, should we do this? What are the parameters of this? And knowing that these were not just pirates kidnapping to extort, right? Uh, Colombia, South America, different countries. It's uh, Brazil, very well known, South Africa, dangerous countries. This is done all the time. The wealthy families have to have bodyguards because they're in danger of being kidnapped. But those are for financial motives. Here it was terrorism. And so Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was um, the prominent rabbinic finger, convened a rabbinic council, and they issued a letter to Golda Meir saying that because his life was in danger, and uh, as we know, uh, the ter- there were terrorists who wouldn't think twice about taking a life, because his life was in danger, we do everything in our power to save his life. As it turned out, um, they didn't have to redeem him. It was quite miraculous that they were let free. And, um, and so it wasn't actually instituted, that ruling. But the question is, and of course, 
you, you, I'm sure people have already thought, well, doesn't the same rationale apply even if someone's life is in danger? Someone's life is in danger, you can save them. But won't it lead to more kidnapping? And won't it lead to more dangers to life if you do that? And so Nachmanides rules, and this, by the way, was also the opinion of one of the other great rabbis in the 1970s, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. He said that the terrorism was an ongoing part of the war against Israel. And in wartime, it's different because they will use this money to kill more Jews. If you pay the PLO, if you fatten their coffers. So here's another factor which is being thrown into this equation of not just will it incentivize more kidnapping, but it might give the enemy the ability to harm us even more. So this is, um, this changes the equation. And uh, Rabbi Mayor of Rottenburg that we mentioned before, he wound up spending six years in prison and refused to allow himself to be ransomed by the community. Now we said, a great rabbi, you do ransom, but he felt it'll incentivize them, the Europeans, the Germans, the Christian anti-Semites, to, to kidnap more great rabbis and to extort more money from the community. And by the way, in Israel, the Ottoman during the times of the Ottoman Empire, unfortunately, this was very common. A Jew would be falsely accused, thrown in prison. They'd say, you have to come up with such and such sum of money to free them. And, uh, of course, terrible choices to be made here. So, Rabbi Meir refused to allow himself to be freed. Right after him, and he eventually wound up dying in prison, by the way. Right after him, uh, the marshal, who was the, the next leader of the generation, he felt that the Maharam Murtenberg was wrong. He felt that as a great Torah scholar, he should have been redeemed. I, what about the danger that other people would do it, that more people would be kidnapped? He said it, that factor was overridden by the, by the need for the leader of the generation. So, so we see that, um, that there are opinions on both sides. But the majority seems to be that if it's in times of war, this becomes more problematic. Now, there is a slight ray of hope because keeping the, hostage, the hostages are a great resource for them, a very, I'd say, a valuable resource for them. If they think they can... trade the hostages for their for the for the terrorist prisoners that are in Israeli jails and what would be considered paying above price what would be considered to be 
uh, not doing so. And uh, Rabbi Malamed, who we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, who is a contemporary rabbi in Israel today, he did mention that one for one might not be paying above what is, uh, I guess, um, over paying for the ransom of a captive. So that might be a parameter. Of course, unfortunately, we know that the discussions are nowhere near there. The discussions are to release, I saw one figure, there's 6,000 terrorists in Israeli jails, another one, 10,000 terrorists in Israeli jails. Um, so it's nowhere near discussing that. Now, let's talk more specifically about ransoming in times of war, because there are some additional factors that play in here. Rav Yuval Sherlau, uh, so a very well-known figure in the um, in the nationalist religious community, he brings in another factor. And here you go, 6a. He talks about the morale of soldiers. And traditionally, the motto of the Israeli army was no person left behind, no soldier left behind, right? And so the impact on the morale of the army could be significant if you don't redeem the hostages. Once a soldier knows that the state will not do everything it can to free him, including a willingness to release murderers in exchange for his freedom, it will diminish his motivation to fight. Right? So there was always this code in the Israeli army, no man left behind. Even to put other soldiers' lives in danger to go save another soldier. And we even do it to recover the bodies of soldiers, which is a separate discussion. So that's Rabbi Chirlau. Rabbi Malamed, just mentioned Rabbi Eliezer Malamed, says it's forbidden to give in to coercion on, from the part of the enemy, similar to Rabbi Yaakov Komenetsky that we saw above. And he gives several reasons. He says, first of all, in war, our enemies will see this as a sign of weakness, raising their morale and increasing their incentive to strike at us further. And furthermore, it'll motivate more terrorist people to join their cause. So that's the first factor, that they'll see it as a weakness and it'll raise the morale and others will join if we release if we use, uh, murderers. Another factor is that terrorists won't be concerned about being caught. They'll move around, they'll strike much more brazenly because they figure, oh, the Israelis won't kill them. And then if I'm in prison, I just have to wait long enough to be exchanged for in a prisoner exchange. So that's the second factor, is that they think, if I'm taken, I'll be freed. And the third one is, and this is uh, the most heart-wrenching, is that if we release these terrorists, they'll return, at least a part of them, 
percentage of them will return to carrying out attacks against Jews and more lives will be taken. And a case in point here is that Yaha Sinwar, may his name be blotted out, was a convicted of kidnapping and killing two soldiers in 1998. He was put in prison. And I mentioned this last week. He was operated on for a brain tumor. His life was saved in prison. And then he was released in the Gilad Shalit prisoner exchange. And he was one of the masterminds behind October 7th. So we see here, unfortunately, tragically, a direct example of what we're talking about, of a released prisoner in an exchange going and being responsible now for the deaths of 1,300 others. So when we look at it in that light, that for me seems to be the most compelling reason to be reticent, to not want to release prisoners and to do a prisoner exchange that is way beyond the numbers of the ones that were getting released. And by the way, as an aside, Rabbi Malamed notes that this terrorist who was in prison, whose life was saved, there is a principle in the Talmud, an evil person, if they fall into a pit, you do not pull them out. If they fall into a pit, you do not pull them out. You leave them to die. And based upon that principle, it's really not clear whether the Israeli prison system should have had him treated. He killed two soldiers, kidnapped and killed two soldiers. So... Um, so that's the strongest point that's been made. And even though it's so heart-wrenching, and as I said, it's almost maddening if you even start thinking about it, we understand now why the Israeli government has taken a position of not negotiating with the terrorists, not negotiating with Hamas, may their name be obliterated. So what is the alternative? What are you left to do? So here we have another interesting question of should a person put their lives in danger to be able to, to save someone else? So what are we left to do? The army is going in and is has two goals. One goal, of course, is to destroy Hamas, to destroy this terrorist organization, which has done some of the worst atrocities in the history of our country, and some of the worst atrocities since the Holocaust. So the second goal of the war, though, is to free the hostages, to find them and to free them. And we know a couple of days ago there was... A female soldier who they found her. We don't know the details of how they were able to free her and find her and free her. 
But we pray and we hope that more and more will be found alive and will be brought to safety. But in doing so, there's many soldiers' lives that are put in danger. It's one thing to go into Gaza. It's another to go into the tunnels and to have to go into the tunnels in a way that you're not going to kill everyone in the tunnel because there might be Jewish hostages there or non-Jewish hostages. I think there are some Bedouin who were taken as well. So the first text was from last week's Torah portion where Lot, Abraham's brother-in-law, uh, was found himself in the middle of a world war. There were four kings that invaded against five kings around the Dead Sea area. He lived in the town of Sodom. And he was taken captive. And it says here, Genesis 14, when Abraham heard his brother-in-law was taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318. He put together his delta force, his and he pursued them as far as done. And of course, it sounds very reminiscent of the raid on Entebbe when the Israeli special forces went to Ethiopia and freed also a plane of Jews who had been kidnapped, hijacked and then kidnapped. And so we see Abram put his life in danger in order to save his brother-in-law. And so the Archa Shulchan, uh, Rabbi Epstein from late, late 1800s, he says that it's clear from our Talmud that one is not obligated to endanger oneself to save another. There's a principle, principle in the Talmud called Hayecha Kadmim, your life comes first. So if you have a jug of water and you only have enough water for one person and you own the jug, you're not obligated to share it with another person and that you would both die. You're allowed to save your own life, even if another person dies because you can't save him or her. So you're not obligated to save another person. However, he says, Every situation must be, must be dealt with in its context, and you have to weigh this matter extremely carefully and not be overly protective of yourself. So we come back to the original teaching of do not stand by your brother's blood, and we're allowed to put our lives in danger in order to save another person. And we've heard so many stories of incredible heroism from October 7th itself, of family members or just soldiers who headed south and headed right into the battle to save people. We heard a story of a few days later, a soldier who threw his body against a hand grenade and saved his comrades and his life was taken. And we don't know the stories yet, but we can imagine these teams of special forces who are trained to go into tunnels. I can't even imagine what that must be like. And knowing they're going to be booby-trapped. And he concludes and says, anyone who saves one Jew, it's as if they saved the entire world. They've saved an entire world because every human life has infinite value. So this is 
the, the, the situation we're in. We are in the situation where we know that prisoner exchange releasing hundreds and thousands of terrorists will bring about the death of more Jews if we do that to free the hostages. So we're not doing that. But at the same time, we have heroes who are willing to put their lives on the line to help save their brothers and sisters. In other words, they're taking more dangerous chances than they otherwise would to try and find and free the hostages. True heroism. And so the conclusion is that we do not negotiate with terrorists when the demands are excessive and when it might lead to the loss of more life and when it'll give them more incentive to do more kidnappings. But we do find those special heroes who will put themselves in danger to try, try and save the hostages. And that's what we are doing now. And so our prayers and our hopes are with the soldiers that we come out not just victorious, but with all of the captives who have been taken. And once again, the barbary of taking little children, elderly, it's um, its really mind-boggling. And this is what we're up against. And this is why we have to be so strong. And this is why we are being ruthless uh, in executing war against our enemies. Any questions? Um, Let me see if... Uh, Where do you stand? How are you? How do you personally negotiate it? Um, once again, if you think about it on a human level, and you really feel for those families, you're the my first impulse is to say, "Yeah, do whatever we have to to get them to get them back." But then, when I stop and I step back and I look at these sources. I agree with the Israeli army that with the Israeli with the leadership that um, that we can't endanger more people by letting out more terrorists and give them more incentive to do to do more in the future. And so we follow the rabbi's directive of tikkun olam. 